Hey there, podcast fan. This is John Hooks, and I'm one of the hosts of Land Grab. This podcast that you're listening to right now is something that I've been working on for months and thinking about for even longer. This podcast is about Montana, the place and the idea. Both of those things really mean a lot to me. And I imagine, if you're listening to this, that they mean a lot to you too. And right now, Montana is experiencing a period of profound change, both as a place and as an idea. And the concept for this show is to use this moment of change and all of the complicated feelings that it's stirring up as an opportunity to stop and look back, to try and understand how the Montana that we're fighting over today, place, and idea came to be. This episode is not the first episode in the full series. Rather, it's sort of like a pilot or a prologue. Something to introduce the premise of the show and lay out the groundwork for the full series that's coming out later this summer. If you have any kind of Montana connection, I think that you will find much in here that is going to resonate with you. And even if you don't, as long as you know pretty much anything about pretty much anywhere in the American West, I think that you will hear a lot that will be relatable within this episode. If you want to know more about the show at any time, you can find us at landgrabpodcast.com. And now, without further ado, here is Landgrab. America has not yet run out of space but it has about run out of quality space. And it is quality space that Montana has in abundance. Beautiful space, clean space, quiet space, space rich in the qualities which Americans, having increasingly lost it elsewhere, are now seeking as they have never sought it before. This is K. Ross Toole probably Montana's preeminent historian in the 20th century, giving a lecture to his class at the University of Montana in 1981. And while supply and demand is not an immutable economic law, it does remain true that if what a people want becomes more and more limited in supply, the demand for it becomes greater and greater and properly handled the value of it increases accordingly. Now, if space and distance have been Montana's historical curse, and they have been, they have now become Montana's blessing, and it would be a terrible irony if we were to turn a curse into a blessing, only to turn it back into a curse. And that is precisely where our own control enters the picture, because Montanans and Montanans alone can prevent that from happening. Nobody else can. If we choose short-range profits, we can indeed pollute, 
and sell our water. We can develop our valleys. We can strip our coal. We can cut our trees and say, as we have always said before, you come, you come one and all, you bring some cash and you rip it and you rape it and you rob it and you move on. But we could say, we have the legal right to say, you come, but you come on our terms. We can say you come and you develop our valleys, but you will develop them in such a way so that by your very coming, you do not lose what you came to find. if you'd like. Um, I'm going to turn now to public comment. Um, if you would like to make a public comment on this application, there are three ways that you can do that. If you are joining us through WebEx, you can use the raise your hand feature. At the very bottom and right hand corner this is Cindy Andrus, the mayor of Bozeman, Montana. If you don't know Bozeman, it's a city in the southwest part of the state in the Gallatin Valley. And it's in the part of the state that most people think of when they conjure up an image of Montana. Powerful, rugged mountain ranges, beautiful, sage-filled valleys, crystal-clear winding rivers. It's got world-class skiing nearby at Big Sky and other resorts. And it's near Yellowstone National Park and the town of Livingston where a river runs through it, was filmed. Mayor Andrus is conducting a virtual city commission meeting on the evening of Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. If after a couple seconds, nobody starts speaking, then I will ask you to speak up. Mayor Andrus is opening up public comment on Resolution 5284, which will decide the fate of 20 acres of Gallatin County land a few miles southwest of downtown Bozeman and Montana State University. It's the last agenda item of the night for the commission, and the mayor is trying to move things along quickly because a lot of people have queued up to make comment. As folks are queuing up, I would just remind the public that um, the majority of the commission um, has listened to or attended um, the public hearings on at the Zoning Commission. Um, I can assure you that this commission has read um, all of the public comment that we received by noon today. We've been receiving it over the last um, several weeks, maybe over the last month probably. The commission is deciding whether to annex the land into the city limits and how to zone the property. The development company who owns it has requested an R4 designation, which would mark the area as a residential high-density district and give them the opportunity to build more than 200 units of luxury condos, which would make up what the developer is calling the Buffalo Run development. 24 people are waiting to make comment, which is a lot for a virtual city commission meeting on a Tuesday night in Montana. 23 of those 24 are against the R4 zoning. 
and all of those opposed are current residents of the area. Many of them live in the Meadow Creek subdivision just across the road. Locals would call it Meadow Creek. They've waded through a couple hours of honestly pretty mundane, normal city council procedure. Moving on to action item number three. And an hour-long presentation from developers and city staff extolling the virtues of the proposed development. Uh, the city staff concludes as a team that all of the items shown in green are successfully met, and we believe that uh, the, the necessary criteria for annexation and zoning have been satisfied. There has been a lot of public... But now is their chance to voice their concerns. Good evening. Uh, good evening, uh, Madam Mayor. Uh, I'd like to be crystal clear in my position. I am in favor of development in an R3 level at the Buffalo Run subdivision. The primary issue is that Kirk Drive will be pounded by this traffic. That road is not, does not have the sufficient capacity to handle that type of traffic, creates huge safety concerns, and I'm genuinely concerned about this type of development next to what is essentially an R1, R2. In addition, I, I'm just primarily concerned about simply handing the keys of the city over to developers and the precedent this is going to set. We all recognize that this city is going to grow, but an R4 development next to this R1, R2 development is a recipe for disaster. A lot of the comments follow a similar trajectory to that one. This evening I discovered what I consider a couple of Achilles attendants of this thing. First of all, I would call your attention... To, to set the scene for you a little bit more, this is a largely rural, agricultural area on the outskirts of Bozeman, with a patchwork of new suburban developments popping up and creating amorphous new boundaries to the city limits. A lot of the anxiety is centered around the intersection of Fowler Lane. We all know that Fowler Lane is a dirt road located in the county, not within the city limits. And Stucky Road. Another county road that is essentially black top on top of dirt. Fowler, Stucky, and Kirk Drive take you over to 19th Avenue to the east, which is the main drag that people in the area take to get into Bozeman proper. And these residents are concerned about the effects another few hundred people taking the same confined commute routes would have on traffic and safety in the area. And take a look at Stucky Road. Stucky Road to the east is, is just like Graff Road. It's well developed for a city road. You go west on Stucky and you're on a two-lane road that my wife won't ride a bicycle with me because traffic is so bad in there, you're riding on a shoulder that's falling apart. If I lived in this development, I would not be using Fowler. I would go Kirk, which is even worse. There's probably going to be over 1,100 big trips per day coming down Kirk. Sounds disruptive, doesn't it? Then you have to turn 27. What's going to happen at 27? That's going to be a major traffic jam. That creates some heartburn with me and with a, lot of, with a lot of our residents here. And then there's my two favorite people at the whole meeting. I'm 
When I sit on my back porch, I can see this R4 parcel. On that parcel are adjacent parcels. I have seen coyotes, weasels. Each winter, there's a herd of 50 to 150 elk that migrate to this open farmland. Cranes, geese, ducks. Last week, we saw bear. We feel a responsibility to provide for these migrating elk and their land for migration in the winter is smaller and smaller. So I would like to put in a plea for them that they be allowed to keep their homes for a while longer. But all of their specific issues are rooted in a broader common refrain. Our biggest concern is that this area is not ready for this level of development. Which is essentially that it's all well and good for developers and city planners to look at maps and projections of expansion and growth and go ahead and say that all of this infrastructure required to support a development this size, water lines, sewage, public transit, arterial roads, will just fill in over time. But the residents are stuck on this street-level view, confronting and adjusting to the realities of a new community being built up around them in real time. I just would like to raise a question and a point about the reasonableness, about reasonableness. How long should an existing neighborhood be required to bear the undue burden of many significant negative impacts while waiting for future development? We understand that the development staff is relying on future plans, future transportation plans to say that R4 is appropriate. But it just isn't appropriate right now. Underpinning all of this is the fact that Bozeman is squarely in the center of a huge housing crisis that has engulfed the whole state. With what seems to be a non-stop flood of -of out-of-staters fleeing the confines of lockdown in the big city. The biggest reason people are moving here? Safety, security, and COVID-19 concerns. And dominating the limited housing market over native Montanans who generally have less comparative spending power. We have a crisis uh, across the board. Someone that grew up here having the housing prices explode as they have since March, basically, that it's a really hard pill to swallow because our wages have not kept up. You know, there's just a lot of buyers and not that many homes. And every time industry experts think the prices can't go higher, they do. The medium days on the market right now is 12. So there's huge pressure on local governments to find solutions. 50,000 people are expected to move to Bozeman in the next 20 years. Our market studies almost exactly parallel and just confirm the studies that you guys have had done that show there's a four to 6,000 unit deficit between now and 2025. And the developers claim that this project and others like it are part of that solution. Um, and so, you know, your growth policy wants density, Um, and that's, that's what we're trying to provide. 
But the Meadow Creek residents aren't convinced. And moreover, they're unified in presenting a compromise. I am bummed to say that I'm starting to lose faith in our community plan. We are not opposed to development. And if this was an R3 proposal or an affordable housing proposal, we wouldn't be here tonight. They're not under any delusions that this area will never be developed. They're just asking the commission to slow down, to develop in a measured, sustainable way. An R3 medium growth designation for Buffalo Run is both pro-development and pro-accountable to the other goals expressed in the city's growth plan. Commissioners, please keep in mind that you have other alternatives than simply approving the annexation and R4 zoning as proposed. They may not, they may get overrun by metropolitan area of Bozeman eventually, but it doesn't have to be today. Um, but the commission isn't swayed and votes four to one in favor of granting the developers requested high-density zoning. With those voting in favor, largely skipping over the residents' proposed compromise and giving this kind of all-or-nothing defense of the imperative to make new housing. For me, this decision is really coming out of just a way of thinking about housing in our community. And I think if you're directly impacted by the housing crisis, you understand that we have a responsibility to do everything in our power to make sure that diverse housing options exist for people. Um, If we never develop, if we never grow out here, then we're never going to have the transit options. We're never going to have the capital or the desire to develop the infrastructure needed. And we're never going to attract the sort of commercial nodes that we need to support the walkability component. So um, I see it as a crucial step. Does it slow our growth to say that no developer may develop unless he meets stringent zoning and sanitation laws? Yes, it does. The problem is that Montana has had entirely too many short runs and we can afford no more. These new winds to which are referred may indeed be blowing, and they are, but the old ones have hardly become soft zephyrs. In most areas of Montana, zoning, land use planning, are filthy words. They're communist, they're socialist, they're wrong. Control is a bad word. We had better re-examine these words and our attitudes toward these things because zoned and controlled we are going to be. There's no question about that. The question is, Will we do it to and for ourselves, or will it be done for us by outsiders to and for themselves and to our detriment? That has been the case for 150 years. We ought to stop it. The place we now call Montana has always had a profound, even mystical draw. Something in the sheer expansiveness of the land that attracts people. I suppose the first thing to say about Montana is that it is big. It is, as a matter of fact, 147,000 square miles big. There are only about 4.7 persons per square mile in Montana. In other words, there are very few people rattling around in a very large land. So that, Montana with a population 
is relatively empty of that most troublesome of all species, vertebrates and invertebrates, the human being. And that, I suspect, is why a good many of us are here. The same idea that once drove settlers west from the cities of the east is now driving them east from the cities of the west. The idea that there is so much room up there, there's gotta be room for me. Room for me to get some land, room for me to strike it rich, or to find my own perfect bend in the river to cast a line. Room for me to start over. Room for me to find myself. Montana has long held a particular position within the broader American imagination. A fascination that is rooted in our space, both in the literal physical space of our vast state, in the sheer size of the land and the resources within it, but also in our mythological space as this perennial frontier, an ennobled wilderness of self-discovery, ready to welcome the disillusioned with a second chance whenever their American dream runs dry. Essentially, what the Meadow Creek residents, the developers, the city commission, and really everyone in Montana right now is arguing over is our space. About what to do with what we have left of this thing that we have that everybody wants a piece of. We have wide open spaces, right? But it, that land comes at a cost. Ladies and gentlemen, it is getting late, very late. All manner of people and things are moving from all directions, now once again, toward a land that we love. The debates and conflicts about that space, about what its real value is and who's entitled to it, about who to make room for and who to push out, have always directed the course of history here. And since the territorial days and the early years of statehood, through the 20th century and continuing into today, those debates and conflicts have taken a decidedly recurrent pattern. The city grows, the county dies. This course is essentially about the dark side of things. There is a reason for that, and that is that good things don't need correcting, and bad things do, especially bad things, that keep recurring in cycles. A cycle that has punctuated nearly every stage of development in the state. It is the cycles that have afflicted us since at least the 1820s and still afflict us to this day. The cycle of boom and bust. 80,000 people came into eastern and central Montana between 1900 and 1919. By 1923, 60,000 of them had left. Of explosive growth and lingering decay, Below the surface, the men of the Anaconda Copper Mining Company answer their country's urgent need for more and more copper. Of fortunes made, but almost never kept. Who provides the capital, controls the enterprise. And we have been controlled in Montana, right up to today. From the Montana Mint, I'm John Hooks, and this is Land Grab. I don't think anybody needs to be told that we're in the American West.
because the West is not only a place, it's a state of mind. The idea of El Dorado, of getting away from it all, of leading the new life under the big sky. And my vittles are not always of the best And the mice play shyly round me As I nestle down to rest In my little old sod shanty in the west Oh, the hinges are of leather And the windows have no glass While the board roof lets the howling blizzards in and I hear the hungry coyote as he slinks up through the grass Round my little old sod shanty on my claim Hello podcast listener and welcome to Land Grab. Land Grab is a podcast about the place we now call Montana. And our first series is about Montana's housing crises, old and new. This is a little introductory episode to lay out the premise of the show and the stories we're going to tell before the full show comes out later this summer. I'm John Hooks. I'm a journalist and audio producer. I was born in Helena and I graduated from UM. Maybe you've heard my dulcet tones on Get Hooked with Hooks Friday mornings on KBGA Missoula. And I'm Matt Newman, and I moved out to Missoula a little over a decade ago from a small town in northern New York. I spent the last few years as a journalist in Montana, but also spent some time washing dishes, building custom greenhouses, and raising some meat rabbits in my backyard. As we said earlier, this is a podcast about Montana. Specifically, a podcast that takes a look at the current housing crisis gripping the state and traces it back to its historical roots. Essentially what's going on is that places like Bozeman, Missoula, and Whitefish have become fashionable places to move in the last couple decades. For a long time, housing and the cost of living in Montana was really cheap compared to the Bay Area or Seattle or New Jersey. You know, people are coming from all over the country, realizing their jobs are online and they can live where they want. Credit COVID-19 for that and a huge increase in Montana home prices. That's because agents say people from larger cities can pay higher prices. For them, something similar where they're coming from is far more expensive. The problem is that just started to become more and more popular and was already making the housing situations in Bozeman and Whitefish specifically kind of nightmarish. Housing scarcity has been an issue in Whitefish for years. In 2017, a task force of local leaders and consultants drew up a report that recommended inclusionary zoning as one of several steps the city could take to manage the problem. And then COVID came along and poured gas on the whole situation and lit a match as way more city people looked around distastefully at their confined, super expensive surroundings and decided 
they needed a second home out on the frontier in Big Sky country. So where are people moving from? The study shows 76% of real estate agents get interested buyers from California, 56% from Washington, and 49% from Colorado. The median sales price for a Gallatin County home increasing nearly $96,000 from February to August. In Missoula County, a $47,000 increase, an $88,000 increase in Lake County, and in Flathead County, an $80,000 increase. If you're in Montana, the housing crisis is unavoidable. It's on the tip of everyone's tongue and visible to everyone's naked eyes. There's a good chance you may have heard about it, even if you have no Montana connection. This is the indicator from Planet Money. Today's indicator is, well, actually, it's a photo. Yes, specifically, it is a photo that ran in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, Montana. It is a young guy in a winter coat. There's all the snow and ice on the ground around him. He looks cold. And he's wearing this cardboard sign, wearing it like it's like a sandwich board. And the sign reads, please sell me a home. There's no such thing as a first-time home buyer. Because quite frankly, the cost of homes is so damn high. That's Montana Senior Senator John Tester describing the housing crisis in Bozeman on Tuesday morning before introducing Bozeman Mayor Cindy Andrus to the committee. Mayor Andrus told the committee fast-growing communities like Bozeman need investment in infrastructure like water and sewer, public transit, and faster broadband. This housing crisis is not just something we're experiencing here, but they're experiencing it everywhere from Akron, Ohio to Tempe, Arizona. The affordable housing crisis is a crisis, but every community experiences But Montana's situation is a little unique. Even if you're not from Montana and you don't know that much about it, there's probably a specific kind of image or a preconception you have of what the place is like. Yes, Montana is indeed the treasure state. Land of virility and independence. Land of vast prairies and rolling fields of grain. Land of the shining mountains in this land of ours. The Montana of the popular imagination the last best place. As always, reality's a little more complicated than that. And I think that locals resent when they feel like the whole state is assumed to be like the stereotypical Montana that gets marketed to the rest of the world. We have a real chip on our shoulder about being perceived as this real-life Westworld, a population full of hospitality workers, ready and happy to help anyone with cash live out their frontier dreams. As a result, a lot of emphasis gets placed on being from here in Montana. The idea that in order to understand what the character of the place actually is, with all of its nuances and idiosyncrasies, requires long, ideally multi-generational roots in the place. That label of from here is a flexible designation with a few different levels and degrees to it. 
but to join the in-club and be from here essentially means you or one of your ancestors has to have chosen to stick around and endure the miserable parts of living in a place like this in order to fully earn the benefits. It can't be your second home. It doesn't count if you just come and visit every year. You've got to shovel your driveway in the winter, choke down the wildfire smoke in August. But if you can do that, you're in. The history, the mythology, it's yours to wear on your sleeve. The space is yours to occupy. But it has to be earned, not bought. The reason for this is because Montana's been burned before. In Montana, at least, and as you know, vast promise seemed constantly to stumble and falter, so that in retrospect, I think it's unavoidable that you have to say, nothing so characterized our development as promise never realized, vast wealth of which only a tiny portion stayed at home, that we have been battered and beaten and lied to and lied about. Over the years, we've had a lot of things the wealthy and entitled of the world have wanted. In the 1820s, as you're aware, no area in North America could match our wealth in furs. Later, no area in the West could match our wealth in gold and silver and copper. Nowhere on the Great Plains was the grass so thick and nutritious. No one raised better cattle. We once produced more wool than any other state in the Union. West of the Divide, our timber resources seemed limitless. We had enough water to last a thousand years. And then you add oil, and now, of course, you add coal. So that we were rich, in many respects, we still are. And over the years, we've let them come in and help themselves and leave us to the mess. We were beset, the state was, with withering drought. Uh, there was almost continual violence and strife in the mining camps and lumber camps. These strikes were rarely peaceful. There were disasters, both man-made and natural, which plagued us. And as you know, surrounded by vast natural wealth, we almost always felt short of cashing in. Somehow, the real wealth always flowed outward. We're talking about this because it's important to understanding the dynamics that are at play in the current housing debacle beyond the supply and demand economics of the problem. There's a fear among a lot of people in Montana that I think is genuine, that the cycle is repeating itself that we've entered into another traumatic phase of development that will render the state unrecognizable before it's done. That the wealthy and entitled of the world are back and they're buying up the last of the last best place. But call it colonialism, call it exploitation, explain it any way you want. Those who lived here, those who stayed here, those who put their roots down, kept very little. And those who governed here, with very few exceptions indeed, did very little to help anyone else keep anything. There's a lot of great local news coverage of Montana's housing crisis, but much of it only talks about history in an anecdotal or statistical sense. Since this time last year, 
The median price for a home in Missoula increased 20.5%, but almost a 25% increase in Bozeman. In Whitefish, a 41% increase. Where I grew up in Belgrade, you know, it's completely different. And when I graduated in 80, it was less than 2,000 people, and now it's almost 12,000. So we want to take a different approach and consider the long arc of history in what is still a very young state to look back at the origins of our modern crises to see what we could learn. Our first run of episodes is going to take us back to the early years of statehood, to the last time housing issues were talked about this breathlessly in the state, the homestead boom. They were called soddies and nesters and plow jockeys. They raised hardy crops and sturdy children. They put the roots down deep because they were the ones who came not to rape the land nor rob it, but to make it rich and harvest the fruit of it and to make it rich again. It was more than a hundred years ago, but the parallels to today are impossible to ignore. New white settlers and corporate speculators and investors were flooding into the state, buying up all the land and pushing residents out of the market. Newspaper editorials histrionically framed the crisis as a struggle between the little guy and big business. The capacity for the Western United States to provide new homes for settlers is diminishing warned the Missoulian in a 1901 editorial. In fact, in general terms, it can be said that there are no more chances for home seekers who do not possess capital. The media and the business and political elite of the state hammered on the idea that the problem was one of supply and demand, that the future development of the state was contingent on finding new land for settlement, and they knew exactly where they were going to get that new land. Here's the Missoulian again in 1903. There is room on the Flathead Reservation for thousands of settlers. The fate or preference of those already living on the reservation was of little concern. The opening of the reservation may be delayed, but it will come, and the sooner the better. The natural owners of the soil may object to the advance of civilization, but they cannot stop it. The story of the drive to seed land and allot these reservations and open them up to white colonization is the story of how our current ideas about what it means to be from here, about what progress looks like in Montana, and who is entitled to the benefits of that progress got cemented in place. It's just a matter of whether uh, we're going to be able to have existing Montanans and our, our neighbors continue to be able to live here and their children continue to be able to live here, or if they're all going to get, um, you know, kind of pushed out to less expensive areas and replaced by a whole new population. Not so long ago, this was Frontier. Listen closely and you will hear the old ghost echo of covered wagons, the phantom shadows of pioneers, fighting for their lives against the wilderness. Lean men, hard as hickory. Lonely women, wearing their dreams like a bit of bright calico. 
I look at these kids with their restless faces, grandchildren of the pioneers, descendants of the long rifle and the bull tongue plow. I find myself wondering, that proud searching spirit that drove men out along new trails, is it still alive in them, in me? I wonder if this familiar stretch of land were suddenly to become frontier again, how would we meet the test? It may not be long before we know. There's a tense feeling in the air, a sense of waiting, as though some great door is about to swing open. The Dawes Act of 1887 was passed, or the title of the act, the General Land Allotment Act. One of the most atrocious pieces of legislation which ever passed through the Congress of the United States. On its face, the purpose of the act was to civilize us natives, make us farmers. I'm going to be talking about some evil men. These are people with beady little black eyes. Joe Dixon was a prominent Montana politician yeah. and considered one of the real leaders of the progressive movement during the, the turn of the last century. And uh, uh, he also was, was associated with the white settlement of uh, Indian reservations. And that was kind of controversial, especially with the Native American people. After allotment, all extra land was to be sold to whites. The Flathead Reservation up here alone lost a million acres that way. It's an interesting land grab. As we venture back and dig up the past, we hope that people who listen, whether you were born here or just moved, We'll learn a little something about this place we call Montana, and we'll look critically at the history we wear so proudly on our sleeve. The rest of the show is going to sound a lot like this. Matt and I mixing contemporary reporting with historical narratives and analysis. We'll be joined along the way by the legendary Montana historian K. Ross Toole and a voluminous archive of tape from his famous class at U of M, Montana and the West, that was turned into a 20-part series in the 80s on a now-defunct public TV station called Montanans for Quality Television. Uh, the show is called K. Ross Tools Montana, and the opening credits are just a pure distillation of 80s Montana vibes. We'll throw it up on social media so people can see it. You actually heard Ross Toole throughout. He's going to be our wonderfully crotchety guide through Montana's cyclical past. To build through the Rocky Mountains. 16% of the state. The best land, the bottom land, in 20 acre sections, uh, 20 square mile sections on either side of the right of way. Enormous gift for which the Northern Pacific, of course, was profoundly grateful. And they treated us very, very well thereafter, did they not? No, they did not. They can't even run a goddamn Amtrak through Missoula, Montana. I want our land back. We'll also be joined by journalists, historians, and experts from all the communities we'll cover. And while we've got our first run of episodes lined up, Montana is an infinitely fascinating and complicated place, and there are infinite places we could go and directions we could head in. 
we're really just limited by time and resources. We've been working on the podcast all summer, researching, reporting, talking to friends and family and experts, laying the groundwork for the show. It's been a labor-intensive process, and the truth is, it's an ongoing process, too. We're still actively reporting and putting together our first series. We're putting this episode out now to introduce people to the show, to build a little anticipation and spread the word, but also to put the call out to Montana for support. Our friends over at the Montana Mint have supported us as we were formulating and pitching the idea, and they're helping us promote and distribute the show. But as far as the actual production goes, it's really just Matt and I, and the friends and colleagues we've roped into helping us. If you're interested in the premise of this show, if you think these are stories that should be told, and that now is an important time to tell them, you can support LandGrab and donate straight to us on our website, landgrabpodcast.com, through PayPal or Stripe. Any contribution is deeply appreciated and will go towards covering the costs of production as Matt and I travel around Montana conducting interviews and doing reporting as well as the editing, engineering, mixing, web hosting, etc. that goes with making LandGrab the best show it can be. We understand it has been an extremely tough year and change for a lot of people, and that donating to a podcast is just not going to be an expense many people can justify. But there are plenty of other ways you can help us out on this project if you'd like to. If you're a business owner and you'd like to sell some ads, I would absolutely love to read your ad copy on the show. If you want to just get in touch with us to share your wisdom and knowledge and experience, we'd love to hear from you. The best way to find anything or to get in touch with us is to go to our website, landgrabpodcast.com, but you can also get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're at landgrabpod on all of those, or you can send us an email to landgrabpod at gmail.com. And honestly, the best thing you can do to help the show is to subscribe to the feed wherever you're listening here and spread the word. Tell your friends, spam your timeline, anything that sends eyes and ears our way is amazing and super appreciated. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for the full show in your feeds very soon. Landgrab is a podcast about the place we now call Montana, and is produced by myself, Matt Newman, and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. I'd like to thank everybody who's helped us, and is still helping us, put the show together. Specifically, I'd like to mention Alex Coover, who helped us record, engineer, and mix this episode, Shaley Rhaegar, who gave some invaluable reporting advice, and Zach Bagler, who took the sweet photo on our cover art. Music in this episode is by Lucas Gons, Esther Abrami, Mocha Jones, and Huma Huma.
Again, if you want to know anything more about the show, go to landgrabpodcast.com.